This episode is brought to you by Troxel Plus Membership. Learn about the benefits of membership and get your limited time launch offer savings at trxl.co slash launch 20. There's no spaces in that, trxl.co slash launch 20. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have conversations with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. A little bit of housekeeping here before we jump into this week's episode. Would you like to get the Troxel podcast show notes and my AEC Tech newsletter delivered to your inbox? If so, head over to TroxelHQ at trxl.co and click on one of the subscribe buttons on the page. The show notes include all of the links from the things we discuss during the episodes. In this episode, I welcome Mark Thorley and David Flynn of COPE. That's K-O-P-E for those of you who are spelling sticklers like me. Mark is COPE's CEO and leads their overall vision and its impacts on the off-site construction sector. He's passionate about bringing together the field of computer science, architecture, and construction to enable a more efficient and effective industry. His skill set has led him to be one of the leaders in computation, and he now drives that forward to enable off-site construction techniques. Mark began his career in managerial BIM and computational roles for companies such as AECOM, Grimshaw, and Space Zero, delivering iconic projects worldwide. In 2016, he co-founded DesignTech, a consultancy that designed strategies, software, and workflows to utilize building data and create efficiencies through the automation of design and production. David is COPE's COO and has led the development of the business across all aspects with a key focus on company culture, strategic initiatives, and integrating their technical knowledge with those of their customers and partners. With a drive to build advanced digital solutions, particularly focused on modular and offsite construction, he aims to build solutions to eradicate the wasteful processes still inherent in the design and construction industries. David qualified as an architectural technologist at Dublin Institute of Technology, now TU Dublin, and prior to establishing COPE, he founded DesignTech, a computational BIM consultancy based in London. He had previously led the design technology efforts while employed at Grimshaw Architects as their global head of BIM and also previously worked on large complex projects at leading design firms such as KPF and ALA. In this episode, we discuss ways in which we can move forward as an industry, digital tools, roadblocks, the value of the people behind building products and building relationships with them, off-site construction, prefabrication, how labor shortages, rising material prices, and supply chain problems are catalysts of change, configurators, improving decision-making with embedded logic, and the COPE platform. So now, please enjoy my conversation with Mark Thorley and David Flynn. Mark and David, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Evan. This is going to be a fun conversation. I always say that. It's always going to be a fun conversation. So the listeners of the show are used to me saying that. But I'm looking forward to this because I don't know enough about what you guys are doing. And so let's just start off and talk about why you do what you do and how you got to where you are today. And then we can get into the bigger picture problems that you guys have identified yourselves as being the ones to solve in the industry. Mark, why don't you begin 
with a bit of a background and a bio, like how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a background in architecture. I've worked in software and technology for most of my career. I've always been excited around big challenges, you know, really complex problems. And we've always worked within this space of how technology can bridge the gap between some of those challenges that are faced within architecture and engineering and construction. For me personally, I always had quite a, an ambition to build a team around a singular vision, and we're getting the opportunity to do that with Cope. I guess I can leave it there and hand over to Dave to do a bit of an intro to himself as well. Yeah, go for it, Dave. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, my background's probably a bit more on the technical side of things in relation to process flow, supporting designers, typically, not necessarily on cutting edge technology, which uh, really became part of my career when I met Mark. Prior to that, it was very much focused around the kind of basic BIM world CAD, uh, making sure that processes were aligned for designers. Having gotten to know Mark when we worked together at Grimshaw, we started to use a little bit more technology and we pushed processes a little bit harder across those teams. And that set us up for really understanding that there's probably a bigger need than an individual office like across the industry and globally. So we decided to get together and work together in our own company. This is uh, seven years ago now. I'm always unsure when exactly that was, but it was about seven years ago. Shocked at how long it's already been. I know exactly. And I, I, with COVID in the middle of that, it feels uh, shorter and longer simultaneously. <laughs> Time warp. <laughs> Absolutely. What was fascinating about that process was that we really realized that everyone has the same problems. They're universal. In the design space, everyone addresses things the same way. There's subtle differences in the way that we use technology, the way that we name things or organize things or approach things, but there's a baseline across everything. So we've really spent the last few years ramping up into that more and more advanced, more and more complex, trying to solve those issues. Maybe I'll hand back to Mark for how that then blossomed into kind of the world that we live in at the moment. So as Dave says, we set up a company around 2017 um, and that was off the back of leaving Grimshaw and primary focus then was around, I guess, product consulting, if one for a better word. And we did all right from that. We exited that company. And so uh, 2019, we set up Matalab, which was really a second pass at that digital consulting business. Coming back to what I said earlier around that singular vision, we've always worked with very sophisticated and very intelligent people and i think dave and i always had an ambition to drive towards that single product rather than developing bespoke solutions so in the early days of matalab this was around 2019 again i'm a bit like dave where i struggle to get my years correct we started to work with a lot of uk-based modular house builders which was very interesting. They had very different challenges in relation to how the typical architecture industry worked that we were so familiar with. And I think, speaking on behalf of Dave a little bit here as well, but I think we got quite excited by some of the challenges we were seeing because what these companies were really trying to do was bring in manufacturing logic and manufacturing driven design into the design process, really. I think because of some of those challenges, it kind of got us rejuvenated and quite excited about potentially where the industry could go. Through that work, we started to see some trends with some of these house builders, some of the big contractors in the UK, you know, really start to focus a little bit on offsite construction as well. And realistically, that was the foundations of COPE and that was the origins of how we decided to build COPE. And, you know, we'll obviously get into what COPE is over the next hour or so, but that was really the origins of it. I think where the UK was heading around off-site construction, it all started to veer towards that as a North Star. Mm. 
It's interesting to think of the trajectory that you guys have been on. You met at Grimshaw. I just a, a side story here. One of my case studies when I was in school was of I'm failing to remember the name of the train station in in central London. You guys know the name of it? There's like an addition, that big roof that goes over it. Uh, Waterloo. Waterloo Station. Yeah, thank you. And I did a case study of that because we were doing an airport project in studio and I did a section model through it and I was the first student in my class, so I'm totally dating myself here, which was to laser cut a model. So I drew the cross section in CAD back then finding a book that had a cross-section. Of course, they existed, and I think by that point, Grimshaw had probably a monograph out. But it was like, scan that in, trace it in CAD, do all the paths for the laser cutter, learn how laser cutters worked, built this model, and photograph it. And I guess it was just lucky that I photographed it, and I actually went to a photographer's studio to photograph it. And my photographer was so thrilled to be able to kind of artistically design a photo shoot around this little chipboard study model and make some really cool images out of it because my professor loved the model so much he kept it. And it was like, this is a model that I would hang on my wall today. I was so proud of it. Being the first student in my class to ever laser cut a model, the shop down the street got this laser. They didn't even know what to do with it. Just a funny story that takes me back to when I hear Grimshaw. That's the thing that I think of. I love that. That's a great story. You know what's funny about that topic? I ended up working for the two companies who I studied um, during my thesis at the end of my degree, one of which was uh, Future Systems, which became a Mandela Vet Architects, and uh, the second was Grimshaw. And ended up working with both. So it was kind of a fascinating journey to meet those directors and the designers who worked on those projects that I was working through and understanding what they'd done from a distance. So yeah, very much of a kinship of what you've done. Yeah, those old books, I have a Future Systems book somewhere in my library. And it's just so fun to kind of thumb through those still to this day. Just really great stuff. No, it really is. What's interesting about where our journey overlaps with Grimshaw, and I'm going to age myself here the same as you just have. And my interaction with Mark uh, was to hire Mark into Grimshaw. And um, amazingly enough, uh, I was also involved with hiring Radu, who's our third co-founder at Cope. So we all worked together, but not necessarily the exact same time. But we understood the value that the three of us would bring together. And I definitely would say to listeners of, of of this session that one of the most important things you can really do in your career is partner or team up with people who you just find to be incredibly talented and and keep them there. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. So another thing that you said was that you identified pretty early on that all of these companies kind of have the same problems, just maybe slightly different recipes, slightly different flavor, but the fundamentals are very similar across the board. And I have to echo that as well. And when I was participating in AIA's large firm roundtable here in the States, it was really eye-opening to not only just see behind the curtain that everybody is struggling with these very similar issues around technology. That was what we were focused on. But also it was reassuring in that I didn't feel alone. Because when you look at your own firm and you're an island in this big sea of companies and you're competing against those companies, it's kind of a natural tendency to think, especially when you look at certain firm names, you just make an assumption that there's some level that they're operating at, which is way above your own. And it was very reassuring to go to these meetings and just really down-to-earth talk about the day-to-day struggles of practice and technology integration and adoption and 
being inundated with data and information and figuring out how to process that or make us work smarter, better over time. All of those feelings, it was good to talk through that with other people. And as a consultancy firm, you guys have to maybe talk a little bit about how, just go a little deeper with that, because I assume that you also are able to, because you have this view into what's going on out there, you can help people really understand what's working, what's not working, where other people are at to make them feel that reassuredness that they're not so far behind that there's nothing they can do about it. Or to say, you know what, like you're not just experimenting for the sake of experimenting. These have had some real outcomes for other firms in the recent past or whatever to just say like, this isn't totally black box wasting your time experimentation. This is something that is worth doing right now. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Just from our early days in the consulting years, because we had the benefit of going into multiple companies, you often, as you said, you often saw different problems or similar problems each company was facing. And I think, you know, as an industry, we put on a bit of a front to the outside world about how well everything is going internally. And actually, that's not always the right, I guess, representation of how that business is being run or the challenges that they have. I think here in the UK, there's a, as I said, there's a bit of a drive towards offsite construction and modular construction. And every time one of these modular firms that's had, you know, a lot of money pumped into them, we know that modular firms are very difficult to get right with all the kind of upfront costs around factories and things like that. But every time there's a challenge there, it's front page on the Reba Journal or the AEC or whatever magazine or publication it might be. And it feels like, you know, as an industry, we need to own some of those down moments a little bit better because everyone's going through their own challenges. It's not all rosy behind the Mm -hmm. scenes. We shout very much about the moments when we succeed, but, you know, we should also, I think, share when we've had challenges and then as an industry, we can all begin to learn from those things. Yeah, I would throw in there that I think that the technologists in the room and online in forums are more real about that than the leadership of the firms and the marketing departments For sure. with each other, at least. And I think we try to get outside of that echo chamber, the technology-minded solutions providers in that space of AEC. There often is a call for leadership to pay attention to and understand this stuff from those people. And that, to me, is reassuring that it's not all complete marketing spin out there for the perception of what's going on in these firms. I don't know how the marketing departments or the the leadership of those firms feel about that. But on some level, it's like just the state of the world that we're in today, wherein all of that information is shared. There's this open source software movement. It's all about that. It's about resetting the baseline of what's available, what we can do about it, but also sharing those struggles and those successes, at least in the online space, but also when we were having these meetings, it was, again, so reassuring to understand, but then also talk about what have you tried? What have you tried? What have I tried? And what worked and what didn't and why and why not? And all of that communication that's going on at some level behind the scenes, but it's there if you look for it, is, again, just reassuring that change is being made and talked about in a more open manner than every firm operating as a silo unto itself. For sure. Agreed. But I bounce back to that point to Evan and ask a question. People truly believe that our industry is in this situation where if we had a software platform or an ecosystem that delivered for everyone equally, we had something utopian from the technology side of things where we could move information and data across all of the different work streams, all of the different stakeholders. And it all works seamlessly. 
do we really believe that we wouldn't fall back on habits of siloing risk and siloing information because that's the nature of the way that the industry has been built for such a long time? Absolutely. That's probably a conversation for another day, but it does feel to a certain extent that certainly the people that you've had on your podcast and the people that you speak to and the people that are really leading the industry are still butting up against a world where no matter what you provide technologically, there's still a cultural pushback, which is just inevitable. So from our point of view, what we wanted to do with Design Tech, the original company, and then Matterlab and then moving into Cope, was to learn some of those traits, to treat the user from a different point of view, and not necessarily be a consultant, maybe just be a teammate, and to have a slightly softer approach and more of a, let's not fix everything, let's just fix the things that really bother you and get them on board that way. So we've had a slightly different approach to things over that time. And as Mark was saying earlier on, it's kind of led us to take a slightly different approach to offsite, to some of these volumetric businesses, and it's kind of led us to where we are today. Yeah. I agree with that, that the behavior is what I was always butting up against. It was pretty clear and obvious to certain people in the firm, including leadership, that change needed to happen and the strategies were agreed upon. But then that pushback, even you know, at the user level, at the team level, at the studio level, because just because it's different than how they normally do it, and because project deadlines rule everything, everybody's lives, there was never this foreseen ability to say, we're going to take the time to learn to do something new because there's always failure in learning and we don't have time to fail. And if we don't have time to fail, we actually don't have time to learn. It's this weird behavioral shift that needs to happen. It's one of the reasons why I left traditional practice was because I felt like I was pushing boulders uphill. So he said, For sure. it's like you're pushing a wet noodle up a hill. It's like impossible to affect change in an organization where change is not a shared value. And it's not because change isn't happening. It is happening. But it was interesting to watch people from a distance have this agreement and nodding of the heads and really talking like, yeah, this is obvious. We have to do this. But then when the rubber meets the road, it was just like absolutely impossible to get sure. anywhere. And you guys have to see that over and over and over again. You know, a question that I think is worth asking is how do you, you know, I talk about this in the sense of training a pigeon, which is you can't train a pigeon. You can't just say, here's the vision. Here's the ultimate goal, pigeon. Now figure out how to do it. I relate architects to pigeons. You have to just give them the first step. You have to say, here's the smallest, easiest, lightest lift thing that you can do. And then we will start to do that over and over and build momentum and eventually get to the big thing. It's almost impossible to even bring up the big thing because there's a kind of an immediate, well, it's either like, yeah, we should totally do that or it's absolute dismissal that we'll never get there. And so it's like, don't even talk about that with people. And I'm wondering if you guys have a similar experience with that or if it's what do you do? What are those steps that you feel like there's so many different examples you could probably pull up here, but what are some examples of those smallest steps that you've asked people to make change on? So small that they almost don't even realize that they're making a change, but strategically it's going to pay off big time in the future. I'm holding off there in case Dave was jumping in. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in because I actually have two there to throw back at you, Evan. I think the first one's probably around the idea that your first point of entry into doing what you do as a member of the construction community is the whatever the software is that you're interacting with. Whatever that is, um, whether that be Revit or it could be Excel, it can be whatever the tool is, a certain level of mastery around how to actually get that to do what you want it to do. And 
in the UK in particular, over the last six, seven years, we've had this push, maybe less so now, but this push towards BIM level two and all this level three. And if we were talking five or six years ago, I probably would have advocated for a lot of that. But as it stands now, I would absolutely be quite repelled by it. The reality is that we spent a lot of time and a lot of energy telling people what the end point outcome was supposed to be and not actually telling them how to get to it. And what we tried to do in our careers has been well, look, I'm the person who was in that design team confused and unsure of why I was being asked to do these things. So I kind of know what to tell an architect or an engineer what they should do day to day to get to that point. The idea that you would mandate the naming of something completely insignificant in a process before you told someone how to name it in the tool makes no sense to me at all. It just doesn't read. So what's so fascinating about what you've put together here is that there's a lot of thought leadership around people who support software, create software, train, really push software as the centerpiece of what we do as an industry. And we're 1% or less of the actual amount of users who are interacting with these tools. And the reality is that if you don't actually know what those 99% of people are doing day to day, you're wasting your time. You really have to have an understanding of it. And not to name any names, but if we were to talk about large vendors that are out there creating large software packages and platforms, the less people from industry they have, the worse the tool is. I think we can all agree that that's a clear uh, relationship. So from us, we make sure that any of our team who are directly interacting with a, a designer at any point know the tools that they're using, as well as that designer does, whatever that tool is. So it's quite an important part of the journey for us. And then the second part of it, but actually coming back to something you mentioned earlier on, we have been very fortunate to have spent a lot of our careers working in residential, whether that be as a, an architect or an engineer, putting housing systems together, like lots of different developments, or more recently working on the client side. So people actually acquiring or building these residential units. And it's invaluable to be able to tell the client how that design team works and what they need and what they don't need to be able to feed that information across both sides of the fence. Mm -hmm. So we've been really fortunate to have worked with some significant housing associations and house builders also a very large array of housing designers. And now we're in the space, as Mark mentioned earlier on, where we're starting to look at being able to build houses offsite, prefabricated. And the thinking from both sides of that has really informed what we've been doing within COPE. I think just to add to that, you know, I think Evan, you made a valid point before. To some degree, it's easy to outline what the end state is. There's always a, a new report or a new diagram that shows what construction could be, you know, what it should be. But I think the hardest thing there is those first couple of steps. It's all well and good describing what a future state could look like in five years, but how do you actually put together a path to get to that? That's really, really challenging. And often that's the first roadblock that stops people from moving forward. You can sit in a room and you can sit in a pub and have a pint and have all these aspirational ideas of where it's going to go. But if you don't know how to make that first move or that first step, you're just going to stagnate at where you are. And I think as an industry, we do that as a whole. Here in the UK, we're quite lucky because I know Dave spoke about the kind of approach to BIM we took a little bit here in the UK, but that came in and was mandated by the government. We're starting to see the UK government over here mandating some things around MMC as well, so modern methods of construction, prefabrication, offsite construction for, for people listening, I guess, in the States. And sometimes it needs that fork in the sand a bit further on in relation to big picture. But then you really need some key innovators in the space to move the dial at the early stage. And I think with what we do now, we're really leaning into that. That's our biggest challenge. I think, you know, we'll get into our vision for COPE shortly. But 
I think the vision is nailed down. It's we can get to that utopian state to some degree that Dave was referring to before. Great, you know, construction will be in a great place, but that's not going to happen overnight. So what does that look like in six months time? What does that look like in 12 months time, in 24 months time? And actually working out a path to get there. I think that's the biggest challenge that this industry faces. And, you know, we face that within COPE as well. Yeah, and I don't mean to downplay the idea that the vision needs to be there. Somebody needs to have the vision and own the vision, constantly reevaluate it, because you do learn things along the way that change the path. It's just how much of that you share with the right people at the right time is critical, I think, so that you don't allow the devil's advocates to weigh in. On some level, some of that is good, but on another level, it's distracting from the actual path that needs to be taken. If you don't know where you're going, you'll never get there. And that old adage, I think, holds true. You have to know where you're headed, and then you have to reverse engineer that to figure out the steps that you take to at least begin that. And then this constant evaluation is happening. just want to reinforce that it's the sharing of that big grand vision is sometimes overwhelming. It's distracting for too many of the people who do the day-to-day work because the gap between innovation and adoption is only getting bigger every single day. I mean, just the stuff that's been pouring out of the internet in the last couple months about all of the AI. There's so many tools available constantly coming at us like a fire hose that we are not adopting because we have to deliver the project and the project requires PDFs and none of that changes, right? It's not going to change anytime soon. I'm not going to look at this new way of doing something when I can't even get the work done that I already have. And so... Again, focusing too far down the future just takes our eyes off of what is that smallest step that we can do today to start to address the gap between adoption and innovation? Because if we were to look forward five years, we would say, yeah, I want to be here. Well, how are we going to get there if we can't even figure out how to work Excel you know, in a smarter way today? You've just described the last two years of our company, to be fair. You hit the nail on the head with it absolutely can be overwhelming, you know, too much information. To some degree, it's on a need-to-know basis. Speaking from our experience and growing this company over the last two years, in the early days, it was probably only Dave, Radu, and I who had foresight over what that end state might look like and how, you know, all the different bits of technology that we've been building and the challenges that we're trying to solve for different customers, how they're going to uh, come to the forefront within the platform. All of these different things, I think it was really only the three of us that had foresight over that. And to mm-hmm. be fair, even between the three of us, we've changed tacts. As you said, we've moved around and pivoted based on feedback and how the market was receptive to what we were doing. Over time, with the team outside of the founders, I think we've slowly been kind of drip feeding them bits of information when and if they needed it that's kind of helped them understand where we are now and where we're going to be over the next six months and over time they start to piece together the vision themselves anyway we've been on a very similar journey to i'm sure what a lot of people are doing internally within bigger organizations in relation to trying to change the course of the status quo i guess there's something in there that i think is worth just lingering on for a moment which is is you talk about the outcome of pivoting over time. Startups do this all the time. It's kind of the normal, Mm -hmm. right? Which is you're constantly looking at what's happening, looking at where you were going, where you are going, where you need to go, and making these adjustments. That to me is interesting if you zoom out and think about the practice of architecture, how slow traditional firms are to pivot their businesses, Mm -hmm. their business model, their deliverables, 
I think it's so interesting, you know, just an observation that there's this microcosm within the industry of startups and technology companies who are constantly adjusting, looking for the right product market fit, looking for the right partnerships, looking for the right strategic outcomes, all of these things. And that's the normal. And it's antithesis to the traditional firms, which are like, this is how we do it. This is how we've always done it. And I know that there's a spectrum there. There's firms that obviously are a lot more agile than others, but it is kind of interesting to watch this microcosm, this group within AEC. They're never in that kind of set state and that they're a very fluid state all the time. And then there's the larger firms that you guys are serving. There's the practices, the service industry, right? And then it's like, this is how we do it. How do you make a tool that enables me to do what I already do even better, faster, cheaper? Just an observation, but I think that's kind of an interesting thing to think about in our industry because in this communication that we were talking about earlier where people are doing this quote-unquote behind-the-scenes communication and illuminating the struggles and talking through how to address these outside of their own silo. And yet there's still this very dominant feeling of being stuck in concrete and the way of thinking, at least in these larger entities and organizations. We have a saying, don't we, Dave, uh, internally? <laughs> there's a common saying, I guess, within startups that you're supposed to fail fast, right? We've kind of taken that and said, let's throw as many things at the wall as possible and see what sticks, which is the same analogy, really. There's certain companies within our industry that they spin up R&D teams and small incubation teams that are, in essence, running startups within the bigger organization. And I think there's always going to be companies that pave the way a little bit. Again, we don't need to necessarily name names, but there's some very well-known architecture practices that you know lead in the way in terms of some of the stuff they're doing, big contractors that are doing the, the same mm -hmm. as well. So I think as long as that startup nature somehow finds its way into the companies within our space, I think innovation will continue. Anything to add to that, David? Yeah, I suppose one of the things that was initially a negative for us when we were pivoting into a product and starting to scope uh, what this you know platform of Cope might be was that we were consultancy. So there was a, this initial reluctance to back us and, and kind of stand by the vision of what we we're trying to achieve there. I think what's happened over the last maybe year, probably since COVID, the lockdowns have ended, we've been able to go back into offices more and get back to that kind of one-to-one -one relationship with a lot of our customers has been that the power of being able to understand what they do day-to-day -day and slightly adjust your approach to that is really beneficial. If we were never to work with a volumetric or a, let's say, a 2D panelized fabricator, and we were only really coming at this from an architectural point of view, we would absolutely be building the wrong thing, without a doubt. The issue that I think a lot of software companies have initially is that they have a vision, they build a version of that, and they go and try and sell that. And what we've been trying to do is say, no, we're going to try and solve the problem that you're asking us to solve, which we're finding quite consistent, but we're going to solve it through a mix of some consulting engagement to start that process and then utilizing the technology that we build to cope, all with the vision of basically saying, okay, well, these are the priorities of what we need to build in the tool. And directing our dev team down that path. So I'm pretty sure that if we had dropped away from engaging our market uh, through consultancy two years ago, Cope wouldn't be as, as useful as it is now for the partners that we're working with. So mm. it's definitely been helpful. Obviously, the, you don't want a false positive there and you don't want to necessarily um, have confirmation bias and, and these things. That's the secret of success really is to make sure that you don't fall into those traps. Let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Troxel Plus. Troxel is now offering memberships. That's right. You can now directly support what we're doing here. With the Troxel Plus membership, you will get your own private feed for ad-free episodes of the podcast, 
the show notes right in your podcast app and in your inbox, your own ad-free copy of every Troxel AEC Tech newsletter delivered directly to your inbox, and additional member-only content over time. For a limited time, there's a special launch offer. Get $20 off your first year when you sign up today. Go to trxl.co slash launch20. That's all one word. There's no spaces. trxl.co slash launch20 for $20 off your first year just for you early adopters. The goal here is for Troxel Podcast and the newsletter to add value to our industry and also to you in your career. And you can help make that happen by becoming a member today. Go to trxl.co slash launch20. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Well, I think we've buried the lead for long enough. Mark, maybe you can <laughs> jump into what COPE is and why it exists. Yeah, I guess I can start with, I think, really why it exists. As we said at the start there, we you know, we were working a lot within the offsite space. We really see this as the future of our industry and the supply chain becoming productized is really where the industry needs to go. There's plenty of reports and documentation around some of the challenges within the industry as we know it now. We're really starting to see the negative impact of that, the labor shortages and, you know, rising material prices and all of these things that are really catalysts to the challenges ahead. And for want of a better word, we really put all our eggs in that basket. Um, you know, we see this as the solving uh, scenario for the industry. And so for us, it was a case of, well, actually, how do we help the industry as a whole move towards offsite construction quicker? And how do we help companies that are more traditional in either the way that they design or the way that they construct? How do we actually help them adopt offsite construction? And that was at a high level, that's really the North Star vision for COPE. Behind the scenes, the way in which COPE is working at the moment, we have two technologies that kind of underpin our overall software platform. So we have a marketplace for off-site construction and at the moment we have a UK-based marketplace and a North American-based marketplace and they contain all different suppliers, all different consultants, so even architects, engineers, anyone anyone really working in the off-site space and the whole idea there is to first of all give visibility into the new supply chain that's beginning to form around construction. People don't know what exists. If you wanted to go and buy a bathroom pod or if you wanted to go and buy a steel frame or, you know, a volumetric module, you wouldn't necessarily know what suppliers there are out there, what solutions exist. So really, that's the opportunity for our industry to really try and embrace offsite construction in a way that we feel it needs to be embraced. And so that marketplace works at an organization level, and then we can actually delve into the different products that all of those suppliers and manufacturers offer as well. And so the second part of the technology piece is our products application platform. There's been a lot of talk over the last couple of years around configurators, speaking about how we pivoted and aimed our messaging and understanding of what the industry needs. You know, we feel that Actually, it's all about the application of products rather than configuring those products. So our application platform is really about being able to pull in those products from the marketplace and allow you to design and specify them in a way that, you know, really pushes the industry towards offsite construction. So I think the challenge we have with adoption is, like I said before, one, understanding what exists out there. And two, you know, now we're working with different 
products and systems that are manufactured in a way that potentially we've never built buildings using previously. It's, there's a slight change in that design process. And so our platform is there to kind of enable that and move things forward in that sense. I have a couple of questions just to jump in here, which is what my mind is racing around is this idea that, so I'm looking for confirmation or just to push back against this. Is your idea that you are partnering with product makers, like physical, modular, panelized, volumetric, however you want to describe it, you're partnering with them to digitize if they already haven't, or they probably have, but maybe to some specific level of detail with some standards applied maybe of their products as like a digital twin, for lack of a better term right now, to put into COPE as a platform for then design side to use during design. Yeah, in essence, I'll let Dave speak because he's quite passionate around the content side of things in a second. Um, but yeah, it's all about understanding at an early stage of design what systems and what products could be used to actually construct the building. And, you know, often I think with offsite construction, often architects and engineers, they feel there's a potential lack of flexibility that's inherent within going down that route. And actually, that's not necessarily the case. I think it's all about how do we actually truly take information from a manufacturing standpoint and help it influence and inform design at the early stages. So, you know, what we need to do there is actually ensure that decisions aren't made as part of that design process that are actually going to limit the choice of systems and products later on. Okay. And then the next question that that leads me to, this is very closely related to the work that I'm doing at Tact in a very different way. But I think the theme is the same, which is that you are trying to get the right people at the table as early as possible so that you address those concerns of limitation because Absolutely. in some respects, limitations are fabulous, <laughs> right? Constraints are good when it comes yeah. to design. And on another level, though, like you're dispelling the myths that people have of these preconceived ideas about what's possible with prefab modular and the various aspects of fabricated objects, right? And so that to me rings so solidly true that you need, because I would assume in this marketplace, and David can speak to the technical side of this through the implementation of these models to be used as a kit of parts doing design work, that the wisdom that's behind that data is just as important, if not more so than the thing itself. And so by engaging with these companies that put their products in your marketplace, you're also putting the people behind those products into your marketplace. Is that correct? Yeah, that sounds about right. I think that's a nice way of thinking about it. The people who fabricate products have as much or if not the most amount of impact in relation to the life of that product right the initial designer will set out criteria but the actual delivery of that criteria is based on the fabrication and the capabilities at the factory and the logistics around transport and, mm -hmm. and storage and so on so it's a funny world we live in at the moment where we typically consider a digital asset to be a geometric representation of an instance of a thing so here's a door, that door is 900 mil wide, and that's an instance of that door. But that's not correct. That door can only be in a wall. It's not going to be in a floor, hopefully. There's a certain level of logic and understanding of these components that are just not embedded in the way that we handle digital content. I think the best example of that I could give you would be a piece of work we're doing at the moment with Langer Work, who've been fantastically supportive of what we're doing. It's been a great journey with them. And from their point of view, they consume a design file that would be quite monolithic. It'll say, I have a 
large building that I'm, I'm hoping to do in precast concrete, but it's all modeled as a monolithic floor, one single piece across every different level. And it's very low level of detail. And what they also do is they have the a basic digital asset of a precast concrete floor deck that they will make in their factories. And they want to blend the two things together. So what COPE is doing is it's taking the requirements of that project, which says I would expect it to be a precast concrete. I have these certain crane positions. I have these logistical challenges around transport. I also have some budgetary concerns and it matches them together with the capabilities of what a kind of a COPE product might be, mm. which would say if I have a particular slab over a certain width and length that I'm having, you know, I'm getting optimization benefits of that. So I can fill that floor with lots of components that are going to flood the space. They're going to fill out what those planks might be. And you're able to get some quantities and build material from that directly. Now, the old way of doing this and the way that the industry kind of does it right now is to gridify things. So it would basically say my typical deck width is, I don't know, four feet. So I'm going to break a grid across all of that floor and I'm going to break it down into rectangles. And that's a pretty standard way of approaching this. We're not doing that. So what we're trying to say is there's an inherent logic inside of that floor deck that says I would like to be four feet wide, but under certain scenarios, I can be a different width. And these are the manufacturable widths that I can have. And we're using our, our engine to basically mix and match all of those different permutations to give you an optimum uh, layout for those decks. So mm -hmm. what we're basically saying is I want a digital product, not just a Revit family, not just a, an IFC file, not, not just a PDF. Uh, I'm actually getting something that understands logic and rules and I'm applying that to the design. So it's leveraging some of our backgrounds um, around computational generative design that we worked with, particularly some of the Autodesk stuff that we did a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. But it's really looking at what does the world look like if I want to productize construction? I cannot have a gigantic library of static instance information. We've tried that. There's lots of them out there. It's unmanageable. The right way to do it in our view, in our, in our vision, is that it's logic-based. So we're going to understand the capabilities of that product, and we're going to apply that through math onto this design file. Um, we're not going to go down the path of um, giving you something that's static and hoping a designer doesn't explode or break it or change the rules. We're always going to have that connection, that really rigid connection back to the fabrication piece. And, and where the you're using the word logic, and I'm and that is different than wisdom. I don't want to confuse the two. Absolutely, I, absolutely. The, but they are they do kind of go hand in hand in that the logic is defined by the people with the wisdom. And then the idea that you have access to the logic is important during design, but design is not. Uh, I'm trying to figure out the right way to say this, but it's like design is is also knowing or hoping like that you can break the rules and that's where things get kind of special, right? Or they have to because of, you know, different environmental or physical constraints or, sure. or or whatever. And that to me is where the importance of the people behind all this stuff to be able to pop in at that moment and say, yeah, we can make that happen. And, and that's where things get interesting. And that to me is what is missing from so many platforms out there, right? Which is like, you know, Revit families. Like, yeah, yeah, all for the best. That's sure. what it is. Like you're talking about these, this idea of static objects. And so to reframe that and, and talk about it from a logic standpoint, to me, makes a lot of sense as a designer. Because there's a lot of people who talk about this stuff in our industry who have never been through, or they're even designing the software that you're talking about, not, not yours, but others out there that 
have never done the thing, have never been an architect, have never had to talk For to sure. a client and walk them through something, have never walked onto site to see how something gets installed. And there's so many levels to that that I think that le- that disconnection from the actual building of the physical thing and all of the steps between here and there weigh into like to me that that's how you become a real architect, right? Software isn't going to just enable anybody to do anything. It's like how can we interpret the code here to get around that? How can we go outside of the bounds of this typical component to do something that we need to do here? And all of that is is where it, it comes back to people. And so this idea of you infusing logic but still I I would hope being able to say, "Hey, I I just need a little bit of help here." And and yeah enabling those people to be found is a key part of that. Like that's something else that we're doing at Tech, right? It's like we can't know everything about everything. We have too many things to be concerned about on the project as the architect. And so stop trying. Just say, I'm going to phone a friend now, and they're going to be able to produce the information that you need right when you need it is such a key part of this whole process. And I feel like a lot of companies are steering us away from that. And I feel like we actually need to steer directly toward that because completely agree, those yeah. people in yeah. the industry already exist. Like we don't have to do anything special there. They're already there. Right. And that to yeah. me is a very small step, kind of getting back to this training of the pigeon idea, right? Which is mm-hmm. just phone a friend to have that phone call for 20 minutes instead of searching for four hours on Google to find the Revit family that you're looking for, not even really knowing if it's the right thing or not, but hey, it checks the box off today. I put the thing in the model and now I can move on to the next step. Well, it might not be the best yeah. thing to do. That that last point there, Evan, I think is the most important one is that is the ability to make a relatively high level decision without necessarily diving into detail at speed. And one of the things that myself and Mark have really realized over our careers has been that, you know, these design Offices have phenomenal levels of talent. Like there's such incredibly talented people buried in them. And what they tend to do is to explore options around something that's a little bit uh, intangible. So uh, you'll you'll get, have a lot of people who are doing pretty incredible work in Grasshopper or Dynamo, who are subdividing surfaces and they're understanding how to put facade systems together to get the right, you know, thermal requirements or sun requirements, whatever it is for that system that they're working on. And what we're trying to do is take that approach and that passion and that drive that's already there. And say, well, how about you don't just push and pull rectangles around? How about you actually push and pull a product within the capabilities of that production system and and tie those two things together? So continue to do your iteration, continue to do really cool exploratory work, but base it on something that's real. And it's really leveraging our our own background in that computational space uh, to bring those two things together. So something that's as gritty and real as a big concrete deck but actually the application of it can be done at high speed, iterate, bin it if it doesn't work, try it again, change supplier, change material, and keep that cycle moving forward. So it's really about allowing the designers to be able to explore things in that real capacity, but also leveraging that wisdom that sits in the fabrication place. So talk about the the real nuts and bolts differences. Maybe, maybe not at super granular detail, but like give people an idea of what makes using cope different than what they're already using, right? Everybody knows what they're already using. So what is that experience like for people? Because I think one thing that we have to bridge the gap here is how is this different than what I'm used to doing and why would it matter to me? Yeah. I mean, I think we, we touched on it before about um, 
you know get into a, an end state and being able to take you know small micro steps to get there um and you know one of the things that we through all the consulting work that we've done in the past you know one one thing that i think dave and i realized fairly early on is that the best way to get any kind of new software across the line is to ensure that it doesn't break existing habits and you're not you know telling someone to completely change how they're delivering work currently um so you know the way that copes working within the current design process is you know the designer you know architect engineer whoever that might be they, they're still working within revit or archicad or wherever that uh, initial design piece might be done um, and as dave says it's all about iteration at this stage so you know they're pushing and pulling things they're understanding you know what uh, uh you know solar study uh requirements might be they're looking at shadowing they're looking at you know, general massing, they're in that kind of early stage conceptual uh, design phase. And so all they're able to do then is push a model that they've settled on as a particular option. Maybe they're actually able to push that to cope and say, let's validate this model as against some of the products in the marketplace and see if that can be built using offsite systems. And whether that's you know, using a timber floor cassette or whether it's using a precast concrete slab or whether it's using a steel floor cassette, Cope's able to, you know, take in the project requirements, take in that design intent and then tell you which solutions in the market are, are suitable to. And it's that, you know, being able to actually understand that you know, making these decisions for, as a designer, for whatever reason, you know, be it aesthetic, be it functional, but actually I know that, you know, when this gets further down the path, that I know that this can be constructed in a meaningful way, and I, I think that's really what we're what we're trying to achieve here. It's it's all about bringing you know those products that you know obviously at the moment everything's done in a very traditional way in construction, but I think you know the way the industry's heading, give it five ten years from now, the entire supply chain is going to be productized. 70, 80 percent of all buildings will probably be prefabricated in in some regards, in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, you know we're already seeing a lot of that here in the UK. So to lean into that. How do we bring those products that all these manufacturers are producing and how do we put them into the design process earlier? Um, and that's that's really what Cope's enabling uh, designers at the forefront to be able to do. Not change their existing process still, you know, use the current design tools that they're familiar with, still work in the same way, still work in the same very iterative process. As Dave says, really make decisions and changes to design based on how that might actually be built. So. Think of it as another addition to a solar study that someone might do or, um, you know, a decision that they might be making for embodied carbon. All of these decisions that happen very early on are based around some form of requirements on the project. All we're doing is adding a construction piece to that now. So mm -hmm. actually we're, we're thinking about how this thing's actually going to be constructed further down the line. Because um, too often they're not, and, you know, being an architect, you, you'll have been through this yourself as well, and, you know, all well and good making all these fancy shapes in the early stages and then you know it goes into detailed design technical design into construction and it slowly gets value engineered the whole way through we need to try and get to a position where we're you know we're not value engineering these buildings down and i think you know bringing the products into the design process early on will actually help that so what's really driving your decisions to go this particular route i mean you you obviously are getting specific about Offsite construction, and I'm sure we could interpret that in different ways of why that's important to you guys. But why is it important to you guys? Um, maybe I can speak to the that kind of first moment uh, where that came from, Evan. We worked with a volumetric modular company in the UK, 
And um, we basically spent two years, including a lot of lockdowns, working through a process that would bring them from a low-level design file into their fabrication content instantly. All built on top of Revit, all built on top of the idea that you would have a low-level model that would essentially articulate design intent um, for, let's say, a house type. And you already know your sequencing of fabrication that was happening on the floor. So those two things are relatively well-defined, mm-hmm. but the translation of information between the two of them was very disconnected. And how we did that was we basically went to each team, each essentially each station in the factory, and said, well, how do you do your your job? Like, what do you do? Um, why do you break a wall down to the plasterboard in this particular way? Why do you insulate in this particular way? Why is the buttons in, in this particular order? And all of that was then codified, turned into some automation steps that we had inside Revit. And we were able to get them from that early stage, low level detail model into something that was actually driving the cutting machines on the factory floor automatically directly from the Revit file. Super successful, really happy with how that went. It was it was a great experience for us, but we realized that the logic that we built was ultra customized, hyper specific to what they did. And the idea that you would maybe, uh, you know, justify that so you would move it a tear up and you would say well maybe anyone who's putting plasterboard onto a prefabricated steel frame might use something similar and let's say that they want to then turn that into a closed cassette and they want to sell that cassette what would the logic look like and so we started to design the process that would be a little bit removed from one company and basically say well let's focus on the product so let's think about the logic of that construction piece and how that might get installed and that that then led us into the world of COPE. So um, it was kind of organic, I think, from from that step. We knew that we were pretty good at the computational piece. It was something that we were um, one of the leaders at anyway. Um, but where we really lacked a lot of knowledge was in the fabrication space. And we really didn't understand how that was happening. So we leveraged those partnerships. We started to, to, to involve ourselves with a lot more businesses who were doing that. We brought the computation to the table with them. And we started to write the logic for how these processes would work. What was fascinating, though, was realizing the amount of tech you'd have to build to actually get that to work. Mm. Um, and that's kind of where that, the concept of the marketplace was developed and, you know, optimization and uh, automatic drawings and automatic uh, bill of materials and all these different things to string together a, a vision for that. But it definitely lent into that first piece, which was, can we automate a process for an offsite company as the client? They have a very regular process and then start to move it a tear up from there. Mm. And and has this enabled these manufacturers of these assemblies or products, you know, to, it seems like if you build it, they will come. If you have a marketplace for those kinds of things specifically, has this opened up uh, to enable businesses to become something that, you know, maybe they're pivoting away from traditional construction into this or new factories are, are springing up because there's basically this, I don't know, Shopify for these these kinds of products now? Yeah, that's a good question. Interestingly, that's actually kind of leaning onto the commercial aspect of the fabrication piece in the first place. So if you have a company who have prefabricated elements that they would like to, to, to actually put into their buildings that they're winning, let's say you're a general contractor, you have been bidding for a project, you probably have your design system understood and your supply chain understood of how you actually want to get this thing built. Well, we're providing is the ability to then say, well, let's digitize those systems mm-hmm. and let's have them uh, applicable instantly. So with the Langer Rook example, 
the main driver there is to make more planks and to make more wall assemblies mm -hmm. to place more of them into a project and therefore the business growth will happen secondarily um and the old way of doing that would take let's say six weeks and you'd sit there and you'd do your grid and you start to break the, the slab down and you start to break the walls down you'd have a, a couple of designers working through that what we're now doing is saying well how about you bid for more projects and how about we always push our products into them we always test all of your prefabricated products in there and see the growth of the way that we're actually starting to get them applied so that's kind of the journey that we're on at the moment so the, the vision from our point of view is to really allow people to be able to get their products into more projects that's the that's the kind of you know the tagline to a certain extent um but we we don't fool ourselves into thinking that we understand the nuance of the fabrication commercials themselves within those businesses it's mm -hmm. a incredibly competitive uh, industry and it's also one with very fine margins a lot of the time so um we're still learning a lot about that space and is this platform taking out the bidding process like how has it changed and I, yeah so there's different ways that projects are delivered right and this probably yeah. narrows that down <laughs> substantially but for sure but it's like is that is it making it easier for people to understand i mean obviously it's making them easier to understand costs but then i would assume you know i come from a, a public project kind of standpoint where there was the bidding process low bid all those things it seems to me like in this you're removing that from it and so are you guys specifically seeing things play out in an advantageous way from that aspect as well yeah heavily um we're really lucky to be in a country where the approach has been to set up frameworks. So to set up pre-organized supply chains for the delivery of consistent building types. It's very, very dominant approach in the UK at the moment. And the, the ability then for us to provide software to, let's say, a hospital framework where the, the wall buildup is highly, highly consistent across projects. And the growth of the commercial aspect for the manufacturers is all tied to the amount of hospitals being built, not just how many walls are in one hospital. It's been quite useful for us. So we're basically in a situation where we can say, within that framework, we're going to digitize that supply chain for a certain level of the componentry that goes in the building. And we'll give you that cost assurance directly from the fabricator, as opposed to just being through that you know, traditional tender process. So you're able to have that cost be applicable really quickly. It's a little bit different when, it, when you move outside of the framework because there's millions of products and there's millions of building types. When you get into something that's a little bit preordained, it's it's hyper, hyper useful. And so then does it also help with the procurement process? Because if the software is, you know, you're picking stuff off the shelf, the marketplace to put into your model and decisions are being made, is there some point at which those decisions kind of get locked in and that can start the procurement process earlier so that these projects can happen quicker? Like, is that ecosystem developing or is it working? That's definitely something that's on our kind of roadmap for the future. I, I think what, you know, to some degree, we, we know what we know and we know what we don't know. Um, and I think that has got us to where we, we, we are fairly well to date. Uh, procurement is a big beast in construction, mm -hmm. um, especially when you consider the, the change of what would be needed to procure something off-site, especially if you're procuring multiple systems from multiple different manufacturers. Um, obviously, you know, design and build and subcontractors and it, it just changes the, you know, the, 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 the playing field a little bit. Um, sure. And so I think in the in the long term, we, we have aspirations that Coke can be the catalyst to, to change some of that because, 
you know, you know better than anyone as well. I think we touched on it before around, you know, some of the challenges with, you know, resorting back to risk mitigation. And that's typically the approach that happens with big contractors and, um, you know, the way that they deliver buildings at the moment. So, yeah, I, I mean, we have aspirations to change that, whether we're able to build something that enables that is, I guess, for the future. It does seem kind of like an obvious future step because it seems to me like the thing that I keep thinking as you guys are talking is it as a designer as an architect using a system like this it it builds confidence along the way a lot faster in what's going to actually happen in the physical world in a much shorter amount of time than traditionally happens on projects right so I think there's always this sense of confidence that we can build what we design but but this is a different beast right this is like this is a product. And so because it's already a product, it already exists in the physical world. This is the digital representation of it. I already know it works. And on some level, I would assume, I already know that it's available, that I can get it, how much it costs. Like there's all of these things that kind of help build that confidence along the way. And that, you know, it's not for every architect out there, for every practice, but it is for the ones that adopt this methodology of doing projects it really makes a lot of sense. It just reinforces along the way. It's this reinforcement mechanism of like, yep, this is totally possible. This is totally possible. Up oh, this, I'm not sure it's possible. Let me let me reach out and talk to somebody. Okay, yep, that's possible. We can do that. We can For get sure. around that. And and that to me shortens the time span because again, architect will have this kind of sense that like, yeah, we we'll figure out a way to do this. But that figuring out is like eight weeks away or twelve weeks away or two years away. And architects are used to working like that, right? It's like big picture. We start with a sketch. We start with ideation. And then we continually refine that until we've figured all that stuff out and coordinated it all. And that that happens over an extremely prolonged amount of time. It seems like with a system like this, it enables things to move much faster. And again, that isn't for everybody on every project. But it does seem like for the projects that it is really suited for, that it just shortens those time periods so much to build that confidence along the way. And you just know that what you're delivering is going to work because everybody on the platform is a professional. They wouldn't be there offering their products if they didn't stand behind them. It takes a lot of the guesswork out of, is the product going to perform as I need it to? Because like there's somebody right there who's done it before saying, yep, it absolutely works. Here's an example. You can go look at it yourself. For it just sure. seems to me it takes a lot of that prolonged amount of time out of this process, which I guess ultimately is great for projects to actually happen faster. Um, but but just overall, like that's one of the big things holding our industry back, right, is just the speed at which things actually happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think just to tie into that as well, every project is unique in some regards and the drivers for what that project's trying to achieve are, are fairly unique as well. And so all COPE is enabling is that upfront decision making and giving informed choices so you know one time it might be a case of okay we're, we're trying to optimize to reduce cost i'm sure that happens on, on most projects but uh, you know and another project it might be around reducing embodied carbon it might mm -hmm. be around you know improving the project program you know getting it built as quickly as possible so all these things come into play. And when you put products in the center of that, you can really drive some very unique decisions early on. Let's go with this manufacturer because they've got a load of these products in stock and they're available to move into our program fairly quickly. 
you know, it's all about decision making, I think, at the end of the day. And if we can improve that decision making, then as you said there, then the time frame for, you know, a lot of this process is shortened. You know, we don't need to go back and forth the usual kind of way in, you know, emails and phone calls and, you know, five, six, seven, eight weeks before we've come to a decision. We can actually make those on the fly fairly early on. Yeah. And I'd add to that, to the idea of trust as well. I think, Evan, you kind of touched on it there, that the reality is that designers typically either don't trust, let's say, a Revit family that they might be loading into a project to truly be the true representation of what their intent is, you know, it's just a placeholder to a certain extent, or they don't do it at all. And it's maybe just done as a some 2D information that sits within a PDF set. Mm. Um, there isn't really that connection. And what we're trying to achieve here is to say, no, we're actually going to put the product into your project. It's literally the product. It's It's got all the data that you require. It's directly connected back to the people who understand why it does what it does and connect it all the way through to the design piece. But to do that, you got to build a lot and you got to kind of sit adjacent to some of the legacy tools that are out there. It's kind of where we find ourselves today. This has been a great conversation, gentlemen. I think there's probably even more that we could get into, but I do feel like we're <laughs> running long on this particular one. So maybe we'll we'll continue this conversation in the future. This whole idea of decision-making early, which is when decisions have the most power. And if you think about it, you know, just kind of wrapping up here thematically, that's what a set of documents in construction is, right? It's just decisions on paper. Like these are the Absolutely. decisions that yep. we've all made along the way to get to here. And by including the logic, like the wisdom idea, the decisions that can have the most impact are made are early. So the earlier you infuse your decisions with logic, with real products, with the wisdom of the people behind those, it makes such an enormous impact. And again, to kind of build confidence in the system early helps also along the way. And that, that I don't think that could be understated. So I applaud the work that you're doing and the breadth at which you're you're tackling this issue. And so I'll include links to you guys, the company, Cope, all of that in the show notes. Is there anything else that you want to add before we hit stop on the record button here? Just a thank you, I suppose, uh, for having us on and also for, for uh, you know, helping um, people like ourselves and, and other people that you've had on your podcast to actually kind of talk about these topics. I think it's uh, it's really reassuring for a lot of us that there's many like-minded people out there doing insanely cool work. Um, it's great to great to see it. So thanks for that. Yeah, just echo Dave's comments. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having us on, Evan. I've been a big fan of your podcast for a while now, so happy to join the conversation. There's some great things going on in construction at the moment, and I think that there is lie over the hill you know in relation to where the industry is going even with all the kind of negative press that we've come so familiar with so mm. uh, i think it's an exciting time to be in construction to be honest and i think we need to continue these conversations and keep moving the industry forward as best we can all right until next time cheers guys thanks thanks, Evan. thanks to our sponsors and thanks to our members this week find out how you can become a member at trxl.co and I'll talk to you again next week.